I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. You may have seen in visits to a federal historical site the Work Projects Administration Eagle from the 1930s, or when you were at a national park, a sign noting that a trail was constructed during the Great Depression by the Civilian Conservation Corps. New Deal projects were well publicized. It's probably less likely that you remember seeing signs in the early 2010s announcing that the road repair project was sponsored by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that was put in place to combat the downturn from the Great Recession that began in 2008. There is a view that this lack of publicity was a mistake. Economists tend to consider public works projects or economic plans from the perspective of efficiency or equity, but not in terms of how to garner political support for these undertakings. But as we've seen, this political support is a key element to having these policies enacted and supported. To discuss these issues, I'm very pleased to welcome to Econofact Chats the political scientist Jacob Hacker of Yale University. Jacob is a regular media commentator and policy advisor. He recently edited, with Paul Pearson, a special issue of the Annals of the American Academy of Social and Political Science on Policy Feedback, which is our topic today. Jacob, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Jacob, I'm just a simple economist, maybe even a simple-minded economist. What should I know about why and how it's important to get the politics right when considering policies that, from an economic standpoint, make sense? Well, I think that economists are very good about thinking about how policies can be designed to deliver certain kinds of economic and social outcomes. And they're less good at thinking about how policies can be designed to deliver certain kinds of political outcomes. And, and they might think, and you might think, that you know, the politics is, is, for the, is for someone else. But of course, every economist who's designing a policy thinks, well, I've got to make sure that this policy is politically feasible, right? If a policy that can't get passed is not going to have good effects. Um, and so what I would encourage is for us to also think about what might be called political expandability. So there's feasibility and there's expandability. So does the policy, once it's passed, get entrenched and potentially expand over time? And I think that's really important today because we're in an era of gridlock and polarization where it's often hard to do big things. And so a lot of the policy steps we take are going to be smaller than we would want. And we want to know are they going to build political momentum so down the road we might be able to expand them in the future? So that's that's kind of the basic idea of policy feedback. And, and I think it can be applied to a lot of the big areas where, um, where economists are thinking about reform, poverty, inequality, expanding health care, climate change. Well, I introduced this episode by mentioning Roosevelt's New Deal initiatives of the Work Projects Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps. 
Roosevelt was, of course, an incredibly clever and perceptive politician. What did he do to help sell his programs to the public at the outset of the Great Depression? Well, we all know about the fireside chats, right? That Roosevelt was a really excellent communicator and he found new media for doing so. But it's also important to, to see that Roosevelt uh, was a very savvy political designer. He understood that you had to act in visible and popular ways to help restore the economy. And it wasn't just a, a matter of getting more money into circulation, for example. And I do think that you know, economists and policy experts tend to debate uh, fiscal and economic policy as if public spending was just about you know, multipliers or aggregate demand. Um, but, but Roosevelt knew that in a country that's skeptical of government, like the United States, you really have to make the case for public spending. It has to be visible and it has to be traceable to government and have those positive aggregate effects. So you mentioned the symbols of the New Deal, right? Almost all the big projects that happened, whether they were artistic or infrastructure, right, uh, involved labeling and branding and saying that these were part of the New Deal effort. And Roosevelt knew that not only was this essential for getting people more confident about the economy and rebuilding it in the wake of the Great Depression, but also that this was important for maintaining public support for Democrats and for the New Deal. There's, you know, Harry Hopkins, who is Roosevelt's relief administrator, famously said, tax and spend. But a lot of people don't know the whole quote. What he said was tax and tax and spend and spend and elect and elect. So those last two are very important, of course. <laughs> Yeah. Social Security was one of the key New Deal programs, and it remains very popular today. In fact, sometimes, of course, it's called the third rail of American politics, something that politicians dare not touch. How did the Roosevelt administration introduce such a radical plan in a way that garnered such strong public support? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the exigencies of the Great Depression were the kind of key instigator for the effort. But there was also a lot of thinking about how would you design it in a way that would allow it to gain support and build support over time. And, and probably the best example of this is a feature of the Social Security Act, and particularly of the old age insurance program, which we now just call Social Security, that Roosevelt's economists were actually somewhat opposed to, namely the payroll tax, that is the way in which money is collected by Social Security to fund old age pensions. And when the economist said, you know, this is a regressive tax and it might hurt hiring, uh, he said, well, maybe you're right about the economics. But then he went on to say that the tax was all about politics. And it was in there because if there was a tax, a contributory tax, and this is a quote, no damn politician can scrap my Social Security program. And you know, he was right, right? That the Social Security expanded in part because people saw themselves as having contributed to it, even if they got back vastly more than they put in, there was a sense that you couldn't touch the program because you were basically abrogating these prior commitments and taking away people's contributions. And the important thing to remember there is that these payroll taxes then were part of movement or political organization building because they essentially created a strong constituency for the program. And it became harder and harder to turn back the clock to the point now where we think of it as a third rail, you know, touch it and die. So all of these things, Jacob, that you're talking about alludes to this idea 
of policy feedback that I mentioned at the outset. What more specifically is policy feedback? And I guess you're alluding to why it's important, but could you be a little bit more specific about that? Sure. The term comes from the work of Paul Pearson and Theda Scotchpole and some other political scientists who were writing in the 1990s about the ways in which policies, once they were enacted, could reshape politics. And in particular, they were really interested in these stories like Social Security, right? Policies that essentially create strong vested interests, strong constituencies, bigger government capacities, and then become entrenched and maybe expand over time. Um, And the basic ideas of policy feedback is that in our society, where government is a huge part of everyday life, that policies are an important part of the political terrain. They are just like political institutions and just like parties and just like voters, something that influences what's possible. And in particular, they work through these various different channels. And perhaps one of the most important channels, the one I've alluded to before, is that they can create powerful interest groups that support the policies. And so it's not much known, but there really wasn't a a group of older Americans, a group representing older Americans before the passage of Medicare in 1965. Uh, But Medicare, because it left some gaps in coverage, actually gave an opening to an organization that was then called the American Association for Retired People. Now it's just known as AARP to sell low cost supplemental insurance to older Americans. That was how the AARP became this formidable lobbying organization with tens of millions of members through building on top of an incomplete Medicare system. Yeah, it was a little disconcerting to me when I started getting AARP mailings about eight or nine years ago and and (laughs) continue to get them. I'm trying to throw them out because they're reminding me of something that I don't want to be reminded of, but there they are, a very powerful group. You might like the insurance when you get on to Medicare. So (laughs) I might like it at that point. Right now, I don't have to be reminded that I'm in this age group. What are some other ways in which policy feedback works? Yeah, I've talked mostly about the way in which policy feedback can affect public opinion or maybe the formation of supportive interest groups. But the scholars who study policy feedback uh, also look at the way in which it changes the capacities of government agencies and the ways in which it can spur social movements or change the structure of markets. You know, one of the examples that I always like to turn to in talking about this this process is the deregulation that took place in the 1970s because its major effect was to restructure markets uh, in ways that made it very hard to turn back the tide of deregulation. So that was a kind of a market shaping effect that occurs through these policies that then had this political consequence of weakening the constituency for these regulations that had once been a huge part of the American economy. So Jacob, you're talking about not only getting policies enacted, but having them stick once they're there, because either interest groups are created or government agencies or just public support for it. You've written a lot about the Affordable Care Act, which is more commonly known as Obamacare. There seemed to have been a lot of concern about this at the outset, fueled in no small part by talk of things like death panels and socialized medicine. But now it looks like it's a very popular program, and there seems to be a reticence to undertake efforts to dismantle it. Yeah, I mean, I think the Affordable Care Act is a is a mixed story about policy feedbacks because 
Unlike, say, Medicare or Social Security, it wasn't a big, visible program. It involved some visible steps, like the expansion of Medicaid and the creation of these health insurance marketplaces. But a lot of it was relatively hidden from view. And I think it's notable that the most visible aspect of the law, the uh, so-called individual mandate, was also not a particular popular one. So I think if you're thinking about how to design a policy, the Affordable Care Act to build support, the Affordable Care Act would get like a a B minus. But over time, I think it definitely started to build these kind of feedback effects that it became more popular with the public as more people received it. And importantly, when people see benefits that they have threatened, right, they're highly loss averse, right? So once these benefits were in place, and then Republicans said they wanted to repeal and replace the law, people became more supportive of it over time. But I think that we also should recognize that the Affordable Care Act created some really important supportive groups, right? Uh, Particularly healthcare providers, which really depended on the increased payments that occurred because more people had insurance or people had Medicaid. At the state level in particular, provider groups were really important to this long-term process by which more and more states have adopted the Medicaid expansion. So those kind of feedback effects on the mass public and on interest groups did kick in and eventually protect the Affordable Care Act against being repealed and replaced in 2017. In the end, Republicans had such a tough task of trying to overcome this, uh, these vested interests and this public fear of change that they were unable to, even with a majority in the Senate and the presidency, they were unable to pass the law. So would you give it maybe, a, in retrospect, a better grade than B minus a few years on? Because B minus is kind of like, I'm sure at Yale, it's not that great a grade, right? Yeah. I mean, a B minus at Yale is a terrible grade, right? So I think, no, I definitely think it it uh, it has improved. It's also the case that today, I think that the administration recognizes some of the weaknesses of the law. So they're trying to, uh, in particular, encourage more states to adopt Medicaid. And they're also trying to make the subsidies for insurance a lot more generous so that more people take them up so that they're more popular. Because it's still... One of the big problems is it's just still really expensive to get insurance through the exchanges. And what the policy feedback literature would tell you is that you want to give people big benefits with relatively little cost. And so if there are costs, you kind of want to hide them. But the Affordable Care Act didn't hide a lot of those costs. So a better grade than a B minus now? Yeah, better grade than a B minus. I think, you know, I think that the law had a rocky start, but I think it's now an entrenched feature of U.S. social policy. And that's, I think, a reminder that policies create their own bases of support. Even a policy that was very marginally popular at the time of its passage can become an entrenched feature of the American welfare state. So this idea, Jacob, that you will improve a grade might come back to haunt you if any of your students are listening to this podcast and (laughs) They might approach you a semester or a year later and ask for an improvement as well. If they're listening carefully, they're going to have to wait at least a decade. (laughs) (laughs) Is the idea of policy feedback becoming more common for political strategizing? For example, can we see differences in the rollout efforts of the current pandemic relief as compared to the stimulus during the Obama administration in response to the downturn that it faced when it first came into office? 
I think we can absolutely see this learning take place. I think the Obama administration, I mean, Obama himself in his memoir said that we didn't do a good enough job selling our policies. But I think that what the policy feedback literature would tell you is it's not just about selling, right? It's about having a product that's designed to create greater and greater support over time among both voters and key constituencies. And if you look at the way the Biden administration has been approaching a lot of its policy priorities, I think they have definitely recognized that you need to kind of use policy to build power. You know, the the best example of this, I think, is if you go back in 2009 and look at the stimulus package that was passed to deal with the financial crisis, The centerpiece of it was this tax cut that President Obama and his advisors supported that was basically invisible. It was a cut in payroll taxes. Now, there's a debate over whether they wanted it to be invisible because, you know, some of the economists said that if it was invisible, people would be more likely to spend it. But it was clearly not a great idea to sink you know, a good chunk of your stimulus dollars into a middle class tax cut that come to the 2010 midterm election, almost no middle class Americans recognized had actually happened. And so this time around, there are big stimulus checks in the relief package, and they happen to be checks, you know, money being sent out by the Treasury Department directly to American families. And so that's a very clear case of learning that the tax cut was actually too invisible and not traceable enough to the government. And I think you can see this in other areas as well, that on healthcare, as I mentioned, there's an effort to try to remedy some of the weaknesses of the Affordable Care Act in ways that will make it more visible. And on climate policy, you know, the the centerpiece of the Obama administration's efforts was a so-called cap and trade program that involved imposing a pretty big uh, cost immediately, right, through this new uh, cap that would be on, on carbon emissions. But whereas the Biden administration is basically talking about a big investment. So first, you know, put the money into infrastructure and climate technology, and then, you know, we'll think about exactly what kind of limits we need to have down the line. Well, on healthcare, Jacob, you were recently awarded the Robert M. Ball Award for Social Insurance in recognition of your, and I quote, profoundly influential research and writings on health policy, especially your development of the public option, a proposal to create government-run health insurance that would compete with private health insurance companies. Well, first off, congratulations on the award. Thanks so much. During the effort to pass the ACA, The public option was ultimately dropped, partly due to pressure from the insurance industry. Now the public option is being revived, but the opposition is coming from the left instead of the right, since it favors Medicare for all, which would be a universal government health care that goes well beyond a public option. What does this experience tell us about policy feedback? Yeah, I think it tells us a lot. The reason why our system is so difficult to change is policy feedback, right? I wrote in one of my first books, The Divided Welfare State, about how the United States came to rely on private employer-provided health insurance. And once working-age Americans were basically covered through employment-based coverage, it became really hard to expand public insurance. So it's not a coincidence that the two groups that were eventually covered in 1965 were the elderly and later the disabled on the one hand and the poor on the other hand. These were the groups that were left out of the employment-based system. Now that employment-based system has been eroding, but if you look at what the Obama administration tried to do 
in 2010, they really took for granted that uh, employer-based insurance would remain the, the main way in which Americans got coverage. And I thought that the public option was a way of expanding the role of Medicare, which is the most popular health insurance program in the United States and has a really good record of cost control compared with the private sector, but to do so in a way that wouldn't necessarily create create the kind of political blowback that you got from Medicare for all, because you know Medicare for all really runs afoul of all of those policy feedback effects I was talking about, right? The, it, it, it goes after the health insurance industry and other vested interests in our predominantly private system. It will freak out Americans who have employment-based insurance, fearful that they'll lose it. And it's going to involve, given how costly our system is, given how far we are from universal Medicare, it's going to involve a lot of new taxes. Now, I've been thinking a lot about the public option as itself a policy feedback strategy, right? If the public option is competing with private insurance and doing a good job and people like it, it could very well expand uh, over time. And so there are people who support the public option who really believe it could be a backdoor route to Medicare for all. I'm not sure if that's true, but I think that it is the case that the public option is designed in a way that if it's successful, it will build public and interest group support over time. Maybe business will come to see it as a good way to cover their workers and therefore uh, are be more likely to encourage their workers to, to get coverage through the public option. And those kinds of processes could play out uh, after its passage. And that's what the policy feedback literature really leads us to think about. And so in a way, right, it's kind of a I don't know, a proven concept of what I've been studying for the last 25 years. Can you design a policy that would create kind of self-reinforcing political effects that would allow it to expand and become entrenched over time? Well, Jacob, this has been really informative for me, as I mentioned, a sort of simple-minded economist, because in operating in the real world, we have to think about these policy actions, whether or not obviously a plan can get passed, but also, as you're pointing out, very importantly, whether once it's passed, there is an ability to keep with it because of the political interest that is garnered from it. So thank you very much for speaking with me today on this topic and basically for teaching me a lot about this. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact, and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.